Good morning, good morning. If you have a Bible or you want to um, dial it up on your device, we'll be in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians starts with a PH, just so you know, and we'll be in chapter 4, verses 4 through 12. Um, I, the internet has confirmed for me that uh, I am the number one dad because they bestowed upon me these socks that say so. Uh, and I, I also, that was actually my first, my son's two, so that was year number one gift. And then this morning, I got an, a shirt that says, I'm a rad dad. So not everyone can be a rad dad, but you know, I've, I made it, guys. So uh, grateful to be a dad. I'm, I'm, I was anxious about being a dad. I was anxious about being married. I was anxious about being an adult. I'm an anxious person. They're just cluing you in on the fact that basically every change in life has made me anxious. And uh, that's just how I process things, it seems like. And some of that's temperamental, but some of that is a faith issue as well. Uh, I don't know if you are a parent or if you are in any of those life stages I just listed but just anxiety is something that just seems so normal, and it's also an issue that's sort of on the rise these days um, in our world. The World Health Organization said, um, unsurprisingly, that the global prevalence of anxiety and depression increased over the last three years by 25%, according to a scientific brief that they realized. Uh, They cited multiple factors, but all the factors they cited were all the things that you would expect um, would cause it. Um, and they said that women, in fact, and young people were the worst hit. Um, you know, recently, there's cause for anxiety. It seems like every time a, a, a pastor wants to talk about anxiety, there's probably like a new list of things. And inevitably, a pastor will like start his sermon by saying like, here's all the reasons you should be anxious. And then uh, let's talk about anxiety, right? I'm, I'm not trying to be manipulative here, but... You know, the stock market is, is kind of tanking. Everyone's talking about recession. Joe Biden fell off a bicycle this week. Like, everything's falling apart, you know? And, uh, and there's reasons to, for, for many of us to be randomly anxious, even in our personal lives. So I'm going to keep going. A Lancet study published 2018 found that people who check Facebook late at night are more likely to feel depressed and unhappy and anxious. Um, and there's all sorts of other things that, uh, that can cause it. So... Anxiety prevalent in my life, and I trust that many of us are feeling the, um, those same feelings. We're in our series called Committed to Memory, where we're memorizing Bible passages, and, and some of them you might have some exposure to, but week one, we talked about Ephesians 2, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not from yourselves, but it's the gift of God, not from works, so that no one can boast. So week one, salvation by grace, the gift of God. Even the faith that we use to believe in God is is a gift. And then week two was talking about uh, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we're talking about the, you're saved, you have the Spirit, that Spirit bears a fruit in you that causes all these traits. And then so today I'd like to just pick one of those traits as like a, as an example, as a microcosm, as a a litmus test, however you want to say it, like let's just pick one of those aspects of the fruit of the Spirit and say, now how do we work out the Spirit's work in our lives practically and daily? So today we're going to talk about peace. Um, The opposite of um, peace is anxiety, right? Sometimes defining a word is helpful to think about the opposite. Like the opposite of love is something like hate. The opposite of of confidence would be um, fear, I guess. The opposite of hope would be despair. But here in this passage, and I think in our lives, the opposite of peace is that overwhelming sense of anxiety 
for the future. And that's the concept that Paul uses here. When I say anxiety, I'm not saying stress or problems. I'm, I'm, I'm using the word in the way that Paul is meant to use it here in Philippians 4, which is to say the future is unsure. And so today, before anything bad happens or good happens, I'm going to feel anxious. That's what he means by anxiety. So today we're talking about peace as the opposite of that sense of anxiety. And we'll see the comparison here in Philippians chapter 4. Let's read it. Starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret to being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. That's the word of the Lord for this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, for the anxious, for the fearful, and for the frustrated, I pray that in the next moments here, we would be able to take a deep breath to, um, to in a sense, breathe in you with, with a posture of willingness and acceptance to receive your word and to receive your spirit, to take on the fruit of the spirit, as we live our Christian lives together as a community. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to talk about three things. The, the substance of peace, like what is it really? The, the strategies for peace, how does this actually work out in our lives? And then we're going to close quickly with um, the secret to peace, which is a word that Paul uses. So the substance of peace in verses 6 through 7 of our passage. He says, don't be anxious. And then the antidote to that poison of anxiety is the peace of God, in verse 7, which transcends all understanding, which is not to say it's not understandable or that it's illogical. It's that it transcends it, which is to say it overcomes it. It's something other than it. It's above it. And the peace of God that transcends the understanding Functions to guard our hearts, but it's only in, it's almost like the end of the passage, or end of that sentence is the umbrella for all of it, because it is in Christ Jesus that we therefore have the peace of God. As I said, the word anxiety here that Paul uses means to be torn up, to be debilitated with worry and fear, and this is an obvious point because this is how anxiety works. Has anyone ever had a season of like burnout? anxiety and fear, and there's just parts of your body that don't work anymore. I remember going through a season where um, I just felt like everything that I cared about was just sort of being torn, like ripped up to shreds. Um, and I was really like fearing the future because it looked like a lot of stuff was just falling apart and I didn't know what was going to happen. And my legs stopped working. I just felt like every time I had to walk towards 
a thing that I was afraid of. I just felt like I was walking through water. Have you ever had that? I was probably like depressed or something. Like my legs just were like, ah, life is just the worst, you know? Like my legs, I I had a a feeling in the pit of my stomach and I just got used to it. And I I remember a friend of mine said, oh yeah, when I I get burnt out and, and anxious and and I'm not thinking straight, I just can't eat anything because my, my acid reflux just sort of happens. And I was like, wait, me, you, me, that, I'm doing that. That's my life, you know, where I just had like, I just lived life with like a daily uh, sick feeling and it was so gut. And I probably at the time and maybe even still now, I didn't have the emotional awareness and like emotional intelligence to recognize like, oh, this physical thing is actually a, a here thing. And then if it's here, then it's probably a spiritual here thing. But anxiety does that. It tears you up. And, uh, and, and, and it's all-encompassing. All it reaches every part of your body. So the peace of God, how does it work? Well, it has sort of two parts in the passage. And it is um, first in verse 11, the peace of God looks like contentment in all circumstances. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. So Paul starts that sentence by saying, hey, I'm not trying to get something from you. Actually, I don't need anything from you because I've learned something very specific. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance. I want to get to that Greek word contentment in just a minute so we can define it. And then in verse 12, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. If you back up in the book of Philippians, you'll remember that Paul um, uses the curse word scubalon, which is to mean like fecal matter. Uh, he's using strong language in the book of Philippians to say, hey, just remember my story, he's saying. Remember the fact that I was highly educated. And with being highly educated and, and being a part of the religious elite class in the Jewish world, I probably had some level of status, some level of financial comfort, some level of like... Um, I don't know, religious privilege to say, like, I'm right with God. Not everyone is as right with God as I am. And Paul uses the word scubalon to say all of that stuff is trash, excrement for the sake of knowing Christ. But part of him saying that is actually I lost a lot of that. When I became a Christian, Acts 9, God met him on a road, just like smashed God's presence into his life, and it messed him up. He's saying, I lost a lot. I lost, I lost privilege. I lost my job. I, I, I had to quit what I was doing. People rejected me. People gossiped about me. And he's sort of like listing all the things that he gave up about knowing Christ. And he calls it all trash for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So Paul knows something about this uh, kind of loss. And, and now writing the letter of Philippians, he's in jail writing a letter. I feel like if I was in jail and I wrote you guys a letter and I had to sneak it by some people so that it would get out to you, I would definitely ask for something. I'd be like, can I get the little jello? Like, just throw the jello into the window of my, like, I'll take some snacks. Get a slingshot, you know, like, arc it into my cell so I can have some, some food. Or I'll take a file. Is something that would help? I'd like, he has nothing. He's lost all the status. He's lost all the financial stability. Um, his, his life is certainly is uncertain. And he says, I'm not saying any of this so that I get anything from you, Christians in Philippi. Even though I founded your church, even though I was the missionary that brought you the gospel so that you believed in Jesus, he's saying, no, no, no. I'm trying to convey a larger transcendent truth about God that has nothing to do with my circumstances so that you'll know him. So, 
He's learned a very specific thing, contentment. Paul's peace is not circumstantial. My peace, our, our peace often as Christians is circumstantial. Um, like I think of how afraid I was when I was younger to get a speeding ticket. Like when you work a minimum wage and you work an hourly job and then some sudden charge or like expense comes in your life, you start thinking about how many hours you had to work to pay for that thing. Do you remember that phase of life? Some of you might be in that phase of life where you're going like, I, like I would get pulled over for a speeding ticket and I would just be so nervous and fearful and racked with like, I can't believe the worst thing happened, I got a speeding ticket. Because it's like 300 bucks or whatever, and you're going like, I had to work a week, I had to work two weeks for that amount of money because I went five miles an hour over the speed limit. And so when I was young, college student, broke, a speeding ticket was something that would have wrecked me. And now you have a little bit of savings or you have some financial stability. And now a speeding ticket is like, okay, let's get this over with, guy, because I've got to get to work, right? And you're not as fearful. You have, to, you have to go lean for a month. Maybe you have to dip into the savings a bit, but it's not as fearful. Did you guys know, by the way, speaking of speeding tickets, did you know that in Finland, speeding tickets are a percentage of your income? That way, everyone across the society is afraid of a speeding ticket. Because, you know, you get to a certain amount of money, and you're like, I can drive however I want. It's only 300 bucks, and that's nothing to me. But in Finland, I read an article that said the story behind the $120,000 speeding ticket. And it's because if you're super rich in Finland, they just go, psh, 0.5% of your yearly income is ours now. Okay, so... That was a tangent, but what I mean to say is if you have a certain level of financial stability, there's a lot of ways to feel like you're at peace when it's not from the Lord, it's just circumstantial peace because you know you've got some money to fall on or you've got some support system or even family privilege or list all of Paul's other privileges that he had that he calls scuba on and say, oh, I've, at, least I've, at least I'm handsome and I know that handsome people do good in job interviews and I, I probably will do fine. Right? Or at least I know that my IQ is higher than the average population. I'm not speaking of myself. I'm thinking of you. I'm, trying, I'm using hypotheticals. You know what I mean. Like you, could, you might think, I'm, I'm smart. I know I can fall back on some sort of job because I'm savvy in this way. That's circumstantial peace. But Paul is saying, I lost every part of it, and now I'm in jail, and I'm not writing you for anything I'm saying. You need Jesus. You need the peace of God in Christ. You who are free. You who are still working and still generating an income and still making plans for what you're doing this summer, you need peace like I have, this thing I've learned. So we might be able to have a sense of peace because we can afford therapy, which is a real privilege. Or you might be able to afford peace because of financial freedom or you can buy the medications that can sort of level you out. But when you strip those things away, if, if you were to have to strip those things away, it would be a real question of where we find our peace. That's what Paul's trying to get at. And he's learned one aspect of peace of God in Christ, which is that it is contentment no matter the circumstance. The other description of the substance of this kind of peace is an inner sense of protection. Look in verse 7. He says, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard there is meant to elicit the feeling of living in a city, because in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, the world was divided by city-states, and so you'd live in a city, and that was kind of what we would call a state. And in that city, if it had walls around it, that's a certain level of protection, so that there's like a, a foundation to your existence. Like, um, you know, 
that you're not just living in a tent out in the wilderness, you live in a city with walls. And, but, but there's a difference between living in a city with walls and living in a city with walls that's guarded by a military. And that's the metaphor here. That at night, you can tuck your kids in, you can think about tomorrow, you can take a deep breath and just go to sleep because you're guarded. As if you were living in a city that had a military around it so that your life can have a certain sense of, an inner sense of comfort and peace. And that's what Paul is saying comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Christians can have a sense of that inner protection in their mind, in Christ Jesus. I wonder if you have had experiences in your life where, as a Christian, you've had an unusual sense of peace. But I, um, I know Christians do, who do have that story. Or when they describe what they've been through, when they describe the hurts that they've gone through, they, their life seems like when you go to the ocean and you see a high tide with big waves smashing up against rocks, and you're sort of wondering, like, how does... How do those rocks stand? The wave comes into it. It washes it completely away. It pounds against it. You can hear it. You can feel it in your chest. And when the wave subsides and the tide goes out, the rock is still there, permanent and fixed. And that's what it looks like to live as a Christian with with Jesus Christ. Our salvation in Christ, a God who's great, and a God who is permanent. And I wonder if you have those kinds of stories, but the description of that peace is like that rock that stands an inner sense of protection, no matter what the circumstance, in all times. That's the kind of piece we're talking about. So how do we get this in our lives? Let's talk about strategies for moving forward as Christians who have the Holy Spirit, and the, the, the aspect of the fruit of that Spirit is peace. How do we live it out in our lives? One, it is a practice. Verse 9, whether you have, uh, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So our faith in Jesus Christ is a faith, it's a belief, it's like you step into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus and yet even though daily life in Jesus is about continued faith in the good news of Jesus and on the truths of, the, of, of who he is, it involves a practice. It involves learning something about yourself by putting it into practice. So those of you who do physical stuff, sports and that kind of stuff, you know that you learn something about yourself when you try and exercise, like how little you exercise. Have you ever had that? Like the first couple times exercising, it's just all about not getting hurt because you know if you get hurt, you're going to be a month out from exercising anymore. And then the first time you exercise in, in a month is like, I don't even know how to run and like this part of my back hurts or whatever. And then I, like my side hurts and then my lungs are, you're not used to breathing like this. It, it reveals all of these, the ways that you have not been putting it into practice in your own life and, and practicing your faith is similar. Like getting into shape reveals all the ways that you have not been in shape for some time. And so you have to get used to the hurt of working out, the, the hurt of putting it into practice. And just like any good practice, you, you, you put it into practice, you have to have the discipline to put it into practice, and then you see the fruit of the practice. And, and that's normal in working out, it's normal in eating right, it's normal in learning a new language, whatever it is. And the same is true in some way with our faith. It is, in fact, a practice. And I want to say this first because it's not just cognitive. I feel like sometimes when we talk about Jesus, we're only talking about belief and cognition and steps of faith, but there is a material part to our body and therefore a material part to our practice in faith. So like some people who have good handwriting and like 
enjoy like their environment and stuff. We'll put post-it notes up on things to remind them of the faith that, of the God that they have, right? There's like a, there's a certain kind of person, it's a girl, who puts like post-it notes on the mirror in the morning and is like, it's all in cute handwriting and it says like, you know, God loves you and stuff. And like that's a physical environmental way for you to put into practice a thing that does he- exist here and does exist here. For me, I shared with you multiple times, like talking to myself is one of the primary ways that I get something out of my head and into my heart. It involves me looking like a crazy person when I'm at a, at a red light, you know, and I'm thinking like, oh, and I'm like talking to myself in the car and other people, I'll, I'll see other people looking at me and I'll be like, I'm not crazy, okay, I'm, this is a thing I do. And it's like helps me with my faith. I talk to myself and I say, Mike, why are you so anxious about this thing? You know that the last time you felt anxious, God came through for you or everything was fine and you should pray and you should, you know, whatever. So like I'm a talk to myself kind of person because I'm a verbal processor. Some of you are time management people. Now putting it into practice to grow in your faith might mean you put an alarm on your phone that says at this time of the day, I'm going to pause. I'm going to get into a posture of openness to the Lord and pray. It's a practice. But it's a practice that isn't just physical. It's not just about determination because it involves your belief as well. So verse 8 tells us about what we think. And again, we're, we're talking about strategies. So the first one is that it is a practice, and the second part of the strategy that it, is that it involves thinking. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, think about such things. Um, this passage from Paul can seem poetic, and if you think Paul is just listing off words, true, noble, and right, you might get the sense that he's just being poetic and there's not a specific definition to these words, that they're all just sort of meant to be brought together as good God stuff. But if you look at the way Paul uses those words, true, noble, and right, in the rest of his writings, it gives you sort of a context for what he means when he says these kinds of things to the church, things that are right and just and righteous, things that are noble, things that are, are true. Paul's letters are full of truth, and he's trying to convey to the church in some poetry, there's some loftiness to this language, and yet the first part of it are the more concrete terms. True, noble, and right, think about such things. So when Paul uses those words, he is in a sense just referring to the larger set of doctrines, beliefs, and core things of what you believe when you live as a Christian. He's saying, remember and think about the truths of your salvation in Jesus. Think about what it's like to be sanctified, which means to be made holy and change in Jesus. Think about um, salvation, sanctification. Think about your future, your glorification in Jesus. Think about your future. Think about what it looks like to live for eternity with God in a world that he created and that he restores back to what it was like in the Garden of Eden. Think about those things. Paul's saying, if you're suffering, if you have no self-worth, if you have no self-esteem, if the other people around you think you're nothing, think about the fact that above all things, your identity should be shaped by the fact that you're saved into a relationship with God for eternity. If you're anxious about the future, think about the fact that no matter what suffering you might go through, your future is secure in Jesus, that the money thing will get figured out as Jesus restores the world. That your self-worth and your your feeling of meaning, your your search for meaning will get figured out in the end because Jesus will restore the world. 
And if you're sort of just buried in anxiety and hurt right now, Paul is saying, think about the fact that God has not created the world to be full of sorrow and suffering forever because he's going to restore it. If you feel like you've disappointed God because you're just not good enough at this Christian thing, think about the grace that you've been saved with through faith and that it's a total gift from God so that no one can boast. Like Paul is saying, think of the doctrines, think of the the core beliefs of Christianity and do that until you have peace. So it's not just a practice of saying, hey, make sure you don't get too anxious about stuff. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm... I'm shaming the post-it note thing only because it's such a thing that I would never do in my life. But like, like people who love journaling and stuff like that, it's like, I, I just can't do it. I just, I just, I've never been good at that practice. I always get about two sentences in and I just go, I don't know. So like, like whatever the practice is, it's not just a practice. It involves the practice serving your mind to think about what is actually true, no matter what anxiety you're feeling. That's the solution here. So what are the average messages in the world and our culture today about how to deal with anxiety? I just want to point out this random hypothesis and observation that I've made that um, the more secular our culture gets, the more people who don't have like a history or an interaction with Christianity, um, the more people are just growing up not knowing much about Jesus. And, uh, and if they think they know stuff about Jesus, you hear them talk about it and it, it sort of doesn't sound like they know as much as like what the Bible would describe. Okay, what do they say about anxiety? The more secular our culture gets, what is the culture saying about anxiety? My hypothesis and observation is that it's mostly about practice and not about thinking about the big things. I'll give you a for instance. Average advice that you get. If you're struggling with anxiety and fear and and self-worth issues, does anyone these days sit you down and say, I want you just to think about meaning in life. Like, ask the big questions. Does your life really even matter? And if it matters, is there any hope at, like, your future? Like, do they say that? Is that, like, in, in articles, like, in magazines? They say, if you're really struggling, start thinking about how much you really are disconnected from, like, having any kind of answer to the big questions in life. No. It's all about practice. It's all about saying, you know what? Make sure that you schedule into your month a day at the beach Go just like inhale that ionized air that floats around the, the beach. They say, don't think, shut your phone off. Like that's a tactic. It's all about practices. And it's practices without this underlying meaning. And that's sort of my hypothesis that's like poorly formed even in my own mind. Where I'm saying the advice you get from other people is always about go to the gym because the endorphins need to just get shot up into your brain. It's only practice, but it's not underlying truth. But Paul is saying, yes, there's a practice. But it's like the practice serves to tell you that you should ask the biggest questions about your life. You should ask the largest scale, most significant questions that you can even like think about because you have answers to those questions. Now engage in those with your mind and realize that you do have better answers than you probably even thought and let that give you the peace of God in Christ that does away with anxiety. Okay, so if you are a Christian and you're lacking peace, my encouragement before we wrap up the, the sermon sort of round third base here is to think more. And once you think, you'll have reason to thank God. Verse six, 
Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Why is that important? Why is thanking God an important part of having peace? Well, the important part to recognize is that it's not saying ask stuff from God, and then if he gives it to you, then you say thanks. Paul is saying before you get the answer to your prayer, then uh, before that, you should be thanking God. You should thank God for who he is. And you could even thank God in advance for the things that he is going to send you, which is actually a very scary thing. Before, you're praying big prayers about your future, about your family, about the health of a loved one. And before you get the answer to that, you're saying, God, my life is in your hands and it must be in your hands. So even just the act of praying to the Lord in that is recognizing who has the power and who doesn't. And then thanking him in advance is saying, your plan for the world is the only one that should be enacted, not mine. It's an act of submission and reverence, but also trust in God's goodness. Because what you're saying is, by thanking him ahead of time, you're saying your plan, even if it involves some struggle from me or not getting my way, is the best way. I heard one uh, pastor say that um, you, if he said that you would pray for God's will. Oh boy, I'm butchering this. Uh, I'm going to get to it later. I know I wrote it down somewhere. It's in my notes, uh, and I thought it would fit here, but I, it sounds like I need to. I was memorizing the Bible instead of this passage, apparently, or th that quote. <laughs> I'm going to refine it for you and get back to it. Okay, so making your request known acknowledges that your life is in his hands. Um, thanking him for whatever he's going to do is trusting God that he did not make the world to be filled with sorrow and suffering, but he has a plan to renew it, and it involves him being in charge and not you. I, um, I used to work at a fabric store. My mom is like a, a she, she's a, I guess she's like a seamstress, but for most of her adult life, she was an interior designer, and I worked with my mom, and I was just like a punk kid, and I would lift the big rolls of fabric and like deliver it to people, and then they would cut it and turn it into all sorts of beautiful things. That was what my mom did, but I worked in this interior design shop in Central California. And people would come in, and because I like had the uniform on or whatever, and I worked in this like hoity-toity design shop, I think people thought that I knew something about anything. Uh, and, and I don't know that I gathered much about fabric from, the, um, from working there. You know what I did develop from working there? It was one shoulder much stronger than the other. Has anyone ever had a job where it's like repetitive motion, and you're just like, why is this shoulder just taller? It's because I just did that all day. So people would come in and they would say, like, is this gold twall um, waterproof? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, it looks waterproof to me. Or people would say, is this French country style going out of style? Or is this like, are we in the middle of this? Are we at the end of this? And if I, if I do this in my house with, with drapes, and is it going to go out of style soon? And I'd say, I think you're right. I think that's, that's gonna, you're dead on. It's going to go out of style. Or people would say, are these tassels too long? And I would, I don't know, whatever. It was all sorts of decorating questions. But the one thing I did learn from um, basically lugging and cutting fabric for a couple years while I was in high school and college is what a tapestry is. And, and I would open up the fabric and I would see some stuff that's really beautiful and some stuff that's just kind of cheap. And a tapestry is, you know, a picture that is woven together, which in our world of like digital printing, you can have all sorts of amazing stuff. But a tapestry is something more like ancient and significant, you know? Like different threads 
that have been put together that when the individual threads and colors are there, you back up and you see something that's kind of beautiful. And I want to read for you a paraphrase of Romans 8. Romans 8, 28, where Paul says, for those God he foreknew, he predestined to be in Christ's likeness. Um, and here's the, the, the paraphrase. Where it says, if you, if you love God, God is working everything together for a good for good in your life, absolutely everything, even bad things, even the things God hates, the things he didn't put into this world, he is going to weave together into a beautiful tapestry. He is going to put everything together, and he is going to weave it all together for your good and for his glory. Your life is a thread. The struggle in your life is the cross thread. No matter what the circumstances are that you're going through or that you could be anxious about that might happen in the future, when we pause and thank God, we can have peace by recognizing that no matter what path my life takes, and no matter what struggles that I might go through, I can thank Him now that it's going to turn out to good because He is going to work together all things for good for those who are called to Jesus according to His purposes. That's Romans 8, 28. So it's a tapestry. And your life, my life, all the circumstances of our lives are woven together in God's beautiful plan. And that's why we can thank Him. And then it's not just thanking Him for who He is and what He's going to bring you, but it's also loving. If you look at the loftiness of the language in verse 8, it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. See how there's like a crescendo to the words that Paul uses? And he crescendos on a word that is meant to describe in the Greco-Roman world like life at peace. He's, he's ending our passage by talking about the fact that he has learned to be content in all circumstances. Autarakai, the Greek word is steeped in philosophy of the Greek world at the time. And it's meant to describe a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. And, and it's loaded because there are all sorts of people, um, chief among them the Stoics of the first century, who were trying to like achieve this balanced, zen, perfect, there's no threats to any part of my life kind of thing. And when the Stoics um, followed this philosophy, they were chasing this perfect condition in life by saying something that a lot of men in the West say, which is the Stoics believed, don't be affected by much. Just be like a strong, stoic, calm, unemotional, unaffected kind of person. You're meant to be unworried about the future. You're meant to be unattached with all the things that other people kind of freak out about. You're just meant to be stoic. And I, I think of the pressure to be a kind of man, to be a kind of dad, that is stoic. The stoic philosophy said, the only thing that you can really trust is your own righteousness, your own strength, and your own courage. And there's a strong pull within our culture today to look inside your heart for your own truth, 
to claim your own truth and to only depend on what is inside you for your own happiness. You don't need anyone else. You don't need, you don't need other people. They're going to disappoint you. Uh, don't, be pulled off, don't get put on tilt and pulled away from your own beliefs because you're meant to be a stoic, strong individual. And so Paul uses that Greek word, and he's sort of holding it up here and saying, hey, Stoics, hey, you know how this is your main thing, which is to be content, but you do it from being unattached from something. Paul is saying, the only way you're going to find that is not by just being super strong, uber person, nothing can affect me, but by attaching desperately to the salvation that we have in Jesus. And so if you're worried about the future, attach desperately to the God of the future who has saved you in the future. And if you want contentment, you need to be emotionally involved, emotionally attached, totally sunk in to the calling that God has given you, to the life of the Spirit inside of you. You don't need to be stoic. You need to be, like, in a sense, the opposite of stoic, just completely emotionally linked to the love that God have for, has for us in Jesus, the self-worth and the salvation that God has for us in Jesus. St. Augustine used this same Greek word when he says, only love of the immutable God can bring tranquility and peace. God alone is the place of peace that cannot be disturbed. He will not withhold himself from your love unless you withhold your love from him. So this is sort of the, the secret of peace that Paul is talking about. He says, I've learned the secret, in verse 12, of being content in any and every situation what is the secret then? The secret to this kind of peace is knowing what it took Jesus Christ to give you the peace of Jesus Christ. And I know 2 Corinthians 5 is like a really important passage to our church because we talk about it being ambassadors for Christ. I want to read you one verse after sort of the theme verse of our entire church. And it, it, I'll read the theme verse and the verse after it to close. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who was not sin, he who had nothing to be anxious about, he who had perfect peace with God the Father in eternity, came to become sin to take on the kind of suffering and punishment that would be brought to people who were sinners. And he did it so that we could live a life of peace. He gave up his peace so that we could have peace. And if you want to live with this kind of peace, you might live with, um, you might, if you have Jesus, you could have the kind of life that Christians have had for centuries when all of the things fell apart and they had no peace but were able to call on a God who gave up their, his peace for them. And chief among them is the author of this famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Have you ever sung this song? It is well with my soul. And the author of the hymn sort of has a famous story, in which I think is why the, the song is so powerful, because Horatio Spafford in 1871 was a, he's an American lawyer. He lost everything in his life in the great Chicago fire of 1871. A, a great turmoil, something to be anxious about. He lost everything. A few years later, he had four daughters that he, uh, he, uh, he, he sailed across the Atlantic with his wife, and then the boat fell apart on the ocean in a storm, and uh, the, the ship sank. 
and all four daughters passed away. The rescuers found his wife unconscious. They rescued her. She lived. She sent a, a, a telegraph to her husband across the Atlantic that said, saved alone, just two words. But beyond this difficult story, especially on Father's Day, of a, a story about a father losing his children, think about the way Horatio Spafford thought when he went through that. Think about these words. He talks about peace like a river. Like peace like a river. Those words were written after his children passed away and after he separated from his wife and in the, the seasons following. Peace like a river. Where does the peace like a river come from? Think about the other words. He says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul is a cue to say, hey, soul, hey, self, turn your heart to what is true of Jesus. Think about the sin, not in part, but the whole, nailed to the cross, done away with, and we know something about God in the midst of struggle. And that that causes peace like a river. That's not platitude. Um, that's not a platitude from God. That's not a religious platitude. If God is who he is, it's a promise. And so we can sing the song, we can sing, which we'll sing now, we can say those words, not as platitudes that we hope and wish that it would happen, but as true as Jesus lived and as true as Jesus died, we will truly have our future and our life in him, which gives us today peace like a river. So will you stand up? Let's sing this song together.